Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Whenever there's a war, there can be atrocities that happen under the under, you know, the banner of war. And unfortunately, we're seeing that happen unfold in Eastern Europe today. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Timothy Hemis discussing the American West in the American Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton, available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is university professor Timothy Hemis, and he'll be discussing the first Wild West, uh, the Ohio River Valley, uh, in the American Revolution. Now, hopefully by now, you know me a little bit. Uh, I'm a sucker for a good article on the Ohio country, Kentucky, Illinois, Michigan, all points west in the American Revolution. Uh, It's my own professional field, and quite frankly, I think it's terribly understudied. I love this article by Timothy Hemis, and he's, as you'll hear, very knowledgeable and enthusiastic about the field. You can visit our website and read a myriad of articles on the subject at www.allthingsliberty.com. This is a great interview. It's a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, and I fully endorse it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Timothy Hemis. Timothy Hemis, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Brady, for having me on today. Tell us about your background. So... I'm currently an assistant professor of history, uh, early American history, at Texas A&M University, Central Texas, in Colleen, Texas. Uh, it's a mouthful, but um, but I come the way of the uh, University of Southern Mississippi. In 2015, I got my PhD in early American history there, and uh, before that, I got my master's and my undergrad at Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania. Um, so I have a connection to uh, Pennsylvania frontier, but I've moved around the country and now I'm here in Texas. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, uh, growing up in Western Pennsylvania and Western New York, this was one that has always been in the back of my mind. Um, when I was writing my, going back all the way back to my, my master's thesis, uh, which looked at Pontiac's rebellion and the American revolution, um, I, you know, David Dixon's book um, on Pontiac Rebellion was one of the first books that I remember reading that just kind of drew me into the subject. And so it just continued to, you know, have a wealth of, you know, interest into it. Um, I remember, you know, starting my my dissertation project at Southern Miss. Um, one of my first research uh, trips was to the Heinz History Center. Uh, and so that's kind of where it started. Um, 
and I started going down this path and I started looking up. And so my, my dissertation looked at um, the Indian agent, George Morgan, and actually more on a, on the merchant side. And so this kind of started that passion to, to find more about uh, the American Revolution in the American West. Um, so that's kind of a long, long answer to tell you that it's been a long process. So it has been a long, very much a passion of mine. Timothy, could you describe the American Revolution in the West? Oh, so, I mean, the American West, and we have to define what is the West in during this time period. And it is anything essentially west of the Appalachian Mountains. Um, and so it's a, it's a very different type of conflict. We're, we're, the narrative that we are used to with the American Revolution is Boston and Philadelphia and, you know, New Yorktown. Those are some very, you know, prominent names, but very few people uh, are familiar with the, the narrative of the American Revolution that's happening on the frontier. Um, I, I tell my students this all the time, and they're just kind of, you know, caught off guard. Um, you know, the, the revolution was this tumultuous time, you know, where, you know, everyday people were kind of sucked into this conflict whether it was because of Native American raids or because of limited supplies, um, even at, you know, around Fort Pitt before the, the American Revolution, Revolutionary War broke out, you have Lord Dunmore's War, which is already, cre- it was creating a, essentially, a, you know, anxieties of violence between Native Americans and, and there's different sec- sectors of people going after each other. And so that's, it's kind of already a mini civil war. And so it's a, it's a powder keg that is exploding on a local level. And so the revolution itself gives cover to furthering violence, whether it's racial violence against Native Americans or violence against neighbors or suspected, you know, calling somebody a suspected Tory with, little or no, you know, little, little or no evidence and causing to, you know, draw out a trial and such. So it is, it is a, just a, a chaotic time. And it's one that, like I said, it's, we're used to Boston and the bigger, the Eastern East coast cities. Um, and so the frontiers is a little different. Talk about the role of Fort Pitt in the revolution. What, what role did this play? Oh, so Fort Pitt, I mean, we have to think about like going back kind of long-term, you know, 1758 is when Fort Pitt is created, but by the time the American revolution rolls around, the Fort Pitt had not, had not, um, was it in 1772 had been privatized. And then Lord Dunmore, the governor of Virginia took it over during Dunmore's War, and then Fort Pitt is taken over by uh, Patriots. And it's not a, it is a large installation, but it had, the upkeep had been down. Um, 
it was kind of the defenses were falling apart. But what the whole purpose of the importance of Fort Pitt for the Americans was it was a gateway to the rest of the frontier, to the Ohio country. Um, and it allowed, because where it is strategically located on the three rivers there. Um, and we, there, you know, rivers are the highways of the time. And so Fort Pitt was the gateway to the West. Uh, I think St. Louis has that term now, but it really is Pittsburgh. Um, and so it, it, it plays a kind of a launching part of, of it is the just the, it becomes the the headquarters for the Western Department for the for a Continental Army and Congress has representatives there because that allows Native Americans to come visit Fort Pitt and negotiate and there's also storage there and that's why like men like George Morgan end up becoming important. Uh, uh, he's a merchant, and then he becomes an Indian agent at Fort Pitt, on top of being a uh, commissary. So, so ultimately, Fort Pitt plays an important role in the expansion into the West. What were some of the challenges to commanding soldiers in a place like the Ohio Country? Uh, oh, great question. Um, yeah, you're exactly right. Fort Pitt is the is on the fringe. It is not the most ideal location for a command. Uh, a lot of it had to do with the, the people there. Um, there's a confluence of different types of people. You have Anglo settlers and you have, you know, indigenous uh, tribes that are living out there and that have been kind of moved across Pennsylvania. Um, there's even Moravian uh, settlements out there. And so it is, um, a very cosmopolitan area. If we don't think of the frontiers that way, but on top of that, the, the Anglo soldiers of the local militias were absolutely, they distrusted the continental Congress and they distrusted anybody that was pro Indian. Um, and so this, this, these effects, um, really hindered any progress by commanders at Fort Pitt. Um, that you have examples of, you know, General Edward Hand coming in and he, he struggles. Like every single commander struggles to control the local militias. And I think it's, it's built into this uh, almost a, a distrust from anything uh, with authority. And that comes from Congress or, you know, George Morgan and the Indian, Indian agent, uh, anything that has those kind of elements uh, that just cr it creates this uh, animosity and it, it's not conducive to uh, being a good military installation. Could you talk about some of the most prominent commanders, in your opinion, uh, in the history of Fort Pitt? Okay. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I just mentioned... General Edward Hand. Uh, you also have uh, Daniel Broadhead. Um, you have uh, um, La uh, General Lachlan McIntosh, probably one of the most intriguing uh, people because he actually gets into a duel with uh, Button Gwinnett in Georgia over a dispute. 
and actually kills him in a duel. So he's kind of this boisterous individual. He's also, I believe he's uh, a Scot, if I remember correctly. So he's he's got some, you know, prominent figure. And then you have, last but not least, but you have William Irvin, um, who, who becomes later, after the war, becomes a, a delegate in, in Congress. What moments do you think most define Patriot-Indian relations during this time period? Well, I, I think George Morgan's appointment as Indian agent to the Western Department was absolutely the, kind of the first step. And he believed that neutrality was the key because he didn't want to rock the boat and upset uh, the balance because he, he felt it, it was easier to have friends than it was to create. Because if you had alliances and forced them to fight, that would drive more to the British side. And so that was kind of the, the first part of the, the diplomacy. However, many of the commanders um, had this including including Hand, and actually McIntosh and Broadhead, all had this desire uh, for a large-scale campaign to go take Detroit for that glory of, of defeating the British. Um, however, McIntosh realized that he needed a Native American uh, presence, an, an alliance, a coalition. And so the Fort Pitt Treaty of 1778 when Morgan is absent from Fort Pitt, McIntosh um, put, puts together this this treaty. And so that's one of the, the defining relations, which ultimately will come up um, in that negotiation, in that treaty. It, it actually calls for the creation of a Lenape state. Um, and of course, uh, the United States, the federal government, never will it, that will never materialize um and so that's kind of one of the the interesting outcomes of that treaty and george morgan goes on to explain why um the delaware uh, leaders thought that they they didn't understand the treaty and it just didn't make sense um, because they thought it was just the army simply passing through their territory and building other forts like Fort Lawrence and Fort McIntosh and such. Um, but probably, you know, those are the, those are the diplomatic ones, but the one that really kind of, or the two incidents that I talk about in the article that kind of really show you the kind of the local distrust of any native Americans is, is the corn, the Cornstalks murder in 1777 at Fort Randolph. And then you have uh, the Geneda Hut massacre in 1782, where 96 Moravian uh, Native Americans were executed on March 8, 1782. Uh, so those are kind of those are the the two two big events. And there's there's considerably there's plenty of other ones of, that don't get mentioned. There's you know reports of you know attacks and murders and going back and forth uh, but those are the two big ones that we should be we as you know scholars and, and should know that should be a, a, a impo important part of a, american history because american history is not always 
you know, fuzzy and warm. Sometimes it's dark and, and we can learn lessons from this. Who would you feel, in your opinion, was the most capable commander? Uh, and who do you think was the least capable? Ooh, oh, man, that's a... I've, I was trying to think about this one, and I've, I've gone back and forth on this. I would say probably Daniel Broadhead is the most capable. Um, although I think Edward Hand was probably the one that had the most experience. Um, Broadhead was able, he, he was the commander for a long time. I mean, over, over a year where Hand and Macintosh both said, get me out of here. Um, and so I, I would have probably say that Broadhead is, I mean, he's there for a while and I think he, he even is requesting, you know, to be removed eventually. Uh, Macintosh um, probably is the least effective simply because he has this grand design of moving West and going to Detroit and it's under his watch where, you know, Captain White Eyes is murdered and by the militia. And there's a lot of controversy. He claims that he died of smallpox. I, I firmly believe that uh, George Morgan's report where uh, he was assassinated. So I, I think that part of that is is why I place Macintosh. Macintosh is just such a um, divisive figure. So toxic leadership, if you so to speak. How did decisions made in the West determine the outcome of the war? Well, that, that's a that's a t- it's a tough question because the West is the fringe, right? It's the it's the back country. Uh, it's a theater that is you know we're not familiar with, and so it's difficult to say that you know the actions that happened out there you know had a huge outcome on determining the war. Because most of the wars is, you know, it's George Washington's Continental Army that is having the direct effect. But it has a lot of, you know, direct, you know, outcomes within individuals. And so whether we're talking about George Morgan or we're talking about the individual soldiers, you know, that were fighting in the militia or those that's the the outcome that has an important part um the other thing is we have to think about the west which is you know the ohio country many people in the the new republic had designs uh specifically land scheme designs on ohio and this included george morgan who was involved with the Indiana Land Company, and, and there's there's plenty of others that have been well documented talking about kind of these land speculation schemes. Um, but the Ohio was such a a desirable place, and it was important for the young republic to protect, and that's why it became a Western department. Uh, and so this again, I think there's this um, the borderlands have an important part but they are not the important part, if that makes sense. Timothy, how does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? 
Oh, great question. Uh, I, I really, I, I hope my article, you know, gets us thinking about, you know, the the lesser known stories of the American Revolution, and it that also the war was not just the British versus Patriots, that there was a civil war within it, um, and an Indian War. I mean, you could even break it down into that. Um, so there's there's adding a, a more nuance to the conflict, um, and you know the the other concept is that this is the other big point that I really wanted to pull away. And I hate when you know we we talk, talk about history repeating itself, and sometimes it smacks itself in the self in the face here. You know, whenever there's a war. There can be atrocities that happen under the under you know the banner of war, and unfortunately, we're seeing that happen unfold in Eastern Europe today. And my article really shows that kind of there's local vendettas that was done by the militia under the under the banner of war to exact revenge, whether it's you know a genocidal justice through you know, killing Native Americans or, you know, exacting revenge on your suspected loyalist neighbor. Um, and so these are not comfortable stories that we tell, but it's important that we study them so that we can stop them in the past. And unfortunately, we continue to see this over and over and over again. Um uh, and so that's, you know, hopefully we, you know, we can understand that there's something, something we can, we need to stop, you know. Timothy Hammes, thanks again. Yes. All right. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.